the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, working on how you view yourself or how you, how you define yourself. And last week, I talked a little bit about not listening to that tape in your head or the MP3 in your head that tells you all the things you've ever heard about yourself that you didn't like. Do you remember that? Let's stop listening to that MP3, start listening to God. How many of you, well, before I get through that, today, I'm going to talk about our situation in life, or uh, the, the favorite phrase of, uh, of theologians is your Sitzenleben, your situation in life. They, they like to use it in German because it makes it sound fancier. But your situation in life. How many of you have a difficult spot in your life right now? Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you want to, you can. But, but may... How many of you have had a situation in life where you were sure that you weren't going to make it? You just go, man, I'm not going to get through that. Um, Unfortunately, or fortunately for us, you know, all of us are 100% successful in living through those situations because you're here. But sometimes when you're in those spots, they define your life, they they. it it not just seems like somebody's out to get you. You define your life that way. Today we're going to talk about a friendship in the Bible that actually defines and changes the understanding of one of those spots in King David's life, and that is Jonathan, one of my favorite characters of the Bible. So Jonathan, we we read this in the in the in the fir- at the beginning of the service. Come on, let me in. But here's another spot most of you don't know about Jonathan. Jonathan is King Saul's son, so this is the crown prince, essentially, if Israel at that point in time was going to be a genetic kingdom where the king just passes it down. I want to say it this way. Jonathan would have been or looks like he would have been the king Saul should have been. I see some knowing things up there. And in... uh, Samuel 14, they're in a battle. This is before David kills Goliath. This is before that thing. And what happens in battles lots of times is they get on opposite hills and they get kind of stymied because nobody wants to give up the good battle position. And so they're in this spot and the Philistines are on one side and they're much bigger than the 600 troops that Saul has. And Jonathan says this with his armor bearer. Hey, let's go over there just you and me, and see what's going on. And this is what he says. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I want you to recognize that's a statement of tremendous faith. If you're in a war zone and you think, the Lord can save by many or by few, you're actually saying it doesn't matter the size of the force if God's fighting the battle. It's very um, reminiscent of Gideon, who was going up against 10,000 Midianites with his 1,000 people, and God essentially says to him, you have too many people. If you win the battle, 1,000 to 10,000, you'll take credit for it. So I'm going to send half your troops away. And so he sends half the troops away, and they're still going forward, and he says, No, you still have too many. You're still likely to take credit. Now, how many of you think that if you went into battle with 500 against 10,000, that you'd take the credit for that victory? 
Okay, how about 250 against 10,000? Okay, so, but I don't know if you remember, the whole thing about Gideon was, is that the Midianites were thrown into confusion by the attack, and they essentially did themselves in. This happens, and so this is what he says. The armor bearer is a young man carrying his shield. He says, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said to them, behold, let's go over, and, and if they say, come on up to us, then the Lord has given them into our hands. So you're going over to the sentry, and that happened. This is Jonathan. This is what charismatic leadership is supposed to be. Now, in our day and age, we talk about charismatics, and we think about people speaking in different languages and tongues and all that stuff, but that is not what charismatic means. I want to make sure that you understand that charismatic biblically means led by the Spirit. So a charismatic person is led by the Spirit. Do you remember in in your bulletin, I'm going to do this thing, on the insert, right here, next to the word welcome, there's there's this little circle that we've been talking about centered on our relationship with Christ. The middle one is abounding in the Spirit. That's what charismatic means, right? When the Lord is in charge of you, that's a charismatic. Jonathan is a charismatic leader. So I need to introduce you that way to him as the crown prince. He's in line to be the king. Okay, now, now you've heard that. I'm just going to switch gears. I'm going to talk about David. There's 100 verses here between chapter 18, 19, and 20. And suffice it to say that most of those verses are centered around David and King Saul's relationship. And in that section, King Saul tries to kill David six times. Now, it's not the same as when David flees the court at the end of chapter 20 and goes out in, he flees to um, Samuel's place. And, and, you know, so he goes out to the, the prophet and he hides with the prophet after trying to be killed six times. And, and King Saul says, he's with Samuel and he sends a, a, an army there and God strikes them and they lay in the sun prophesying. And he says, what happened to my first troop? So he sends a second troop, and God does it again. And then, he sends, and then Saul comes out in the third one, and God is protecting David in such a way that Saul is struck and prophesying by the Holy Spirit, and God protects him. Protects him. But in the spot of our text today, we have Saul throwing spears at King David. He's got a tough situation. But not only is he throwing spears... David has been promised a daughter of King Saul, but every time he comes up towards the wedding, Saul says, well, if you go win this battle over here, but I'm not going to give you enough troops to do it with, I'll give you my daughter. And so he goes and does it, and, and on the way back, he marries his oldest daughter off to somebody else. And David comes back, and, and, and he says, well, if you do this, then we'll do it. And so what he's done is he's sending him to impossible battles hoping he dies. It is a way that that kings try to kill people like this. David actually does this with Uriah later on so he can marry Bathsheba. So David learned a bad lesson from King Saul in this one. This is not one of those lessons that you're supposed to learn. 
But the, the sixth time, David is there at home saying, I can't go to the castle. He's trying to kill me like this. And so Saul sends assassins after him to kill him in his home. Has your situation in life, your Zitzenleben, gotten so bad that like you're starting to define yourself by the struggle that you're in? Have you ever had that where the struggle you're in just defines everything and you can't get past it? I've been there. I've been there. But I want you to know that I'm not there right now. I'm not there because something about what Jonathan did and does in the story happened to me. So um, I'd like you to position yourself as you find yourself in the story. Find yourself as King David fleeing for your life many times. Right at the beginning of the story comes, comes the verses that um, Mary Ellen read earlier. I've lost Mary Ellen. <laughs> anyway, Mary Ellen read earlier where they come back from killing Goliath and Jonathan falls in love and makes a covenant with him. I need to, uh, need to go to that to read it really fast for you. Okay, And as soon as he had finished speaking with Saul, this is right after the defeat of Goliath, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And, this, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father. And then Jonathan made a covenant with him because he had loved him. And Jonathan stripped off his robe and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, what you're supposed to understand there is just one chapter earlier, Saul tries to give David his thing, but it doesn't fit. It's not his. It hasn't been given to him. And they go into great detail about how big Goliath's armor is, that it weighs 125 pounds. Or the more impressive weight sound, 5,000 shekels. See, this is more impressive when you say it that way, but it isn't a bigger number or a bigger weight. But this armor, given in love, in covenant, is the exchange that is made for us by Jesus at the cross. It's the same thing. God is giving us a picture of what Jesus is going to do for us in Jonathan. So I'm going to tell you what Jonathan did and what it does. Because Jonathan, remember, is the crown prince. And when he gives up his robe and all that stuff, he's essentially acknowledging that he's not going to be king. And matter of fact, at the end of the text today, I'll read the uh, re- end of this text today, Saul gets so mad at Jonathan and he says, your kingdom will never be established because as long as David lives, it'll be there. But he trades places, essentially. And you'll see that through the story when I read the other one. What, how does Jesus do that with us? Anyone? I did this in the first service. Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? <laughs> when, when Jesus goes to the cross, whose righteousness is he wearing at that spot? Mine. He's dying for the stuff I've done. 
Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 3.23a. Don't forget, if Danny's here, Danny's, Danny knows that the, my favorite word of the scripture is next. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And how that happens is this, is that the wages of sin are the things you do that get you to your destination that, you didn't, that you're planning on. So let's say you're on a train. Have you ever been on a train? How many have been on a train? Not everybody. It's, it's something that, that the generations are changing on. But trains are way cool. But they used to be, in all the old movies, you'd see that they'd have their ticket, and the ticket taker would come by and click their ticket, right? So if you're on a train and you've paid for the ticket with your behavior the wages of sin is death, what you do gets you where you're going. That's, what the, that's the biblical story. What you do, Jesus is the ticket taker says, can I see your ticket, ma'am? And you hand it to him. He goes, you're not going to like that place. Here, let me give you a different location to go to. And he takes the wages of sin at the cross wearing your righteousness and gives you a new destination. He has taken your robe in place of his. Now, in Revelation, you're going to be given, when, when the judgment comes, right, when, when God is judging his people, you're shown, I'm shown, we're shown wearing Jesus' robe of righteousness. An exchange of clothes because of what was done at the cross. Jonathan is showing that. Let me read the, the end text here so you can see how, how complete the exchange is between Jonathan and David. This is at the end of, of chapter 20. Like I said, I'm not reading all 100 verses. I, I know there would be a magic, uh, massive um, rebellion against me if I did read, read three chapters of Scripture to you today. But this is in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. And what's gone on is they're having a high feast, and David isn't there, and, and Saul... Uh, let's start in 28. That's a better spot. Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this, has, for this reason, he has not come to the king's table. That's Jonathan telling Saul why David, after Saul has tried to kill him six times, why David is not there. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said it this way, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. This is the crown prince. I do not know, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? I want you to hear that, actually. That's, that's a pretty stern comment, wouldn't you say, about Jonathan. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. He has traded places. Who's at the end of the spear point now? Jonathan. 
That is a picture of what's going on for the cross for us. Who is at the end of the payment redemption here is this. So later on, he goes through this charade to tell him that his, that his father actually is after him. And they do this. Go in peace, says Jonathan, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So they renewed the covenant that they had made with the clothing earlier. David's time in the kingdom, in the king, in the castle, in the court of Saul, is bracketed by two actions. So if I'm using my English correctly, it's a parenthetical statement. Like you're going along and there's a little descriptor, but you could put parentheses around it and you don't need it. Right? Isn't that what a parenthetical statement is? The whole time in Saul's kingdom, in his court, is bracketed by the, by the covenant that Jonathan makes with David and the renewal of the covenant that Jonathan makes with David. The whole time when Saul's trying to kill him in the court, the defining principle of that is not the situation of Saul trying to kill him. It's the covenant of David and Jonathan. The friendship is the defining factor, the thing that gets you through those hard times in life. Now, we've talked about this, and, and I didn't make you raise your hands, and you have been in through situations that are so hard that you don't think you're going to make it through, but you have made them through. How many of you had a friendship that helped in that hardest time? You did? Me too. I, several times. And those friendships are so precious because most people look at us when we meet them and they just, and that's nobody. Isn't that right? But sometimes you have this friend and they look at you and they know everything that's going on in your life and they still like you. (laughs) They still hang around and it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, they're with you. It's the armor bearer for Jonathan. Look, it's just you and me against the Philistines. But do whatever it is, my heart's with you. Jonathan says the same thing to David in his actions. Whatever it is, my heart is with you. Jesus at the cross says the same things. The picture here is that Jesus says, my heart is so with you that I'm willing to take the place. If you need an intermini- if you think that I'm making the world record running broad jump from Scripture, I don't think I am. But if you think I am, um, can, give, give me a pew Bible really fast. One of them, yeah, one of them red ones. How many of you, I'll have you erase to Zechariah chapter 3. Do you know where Zechariah is? It's a minor prophet in the book of the 12 minor prophets um, after Micah. In your little red Bible, this is on page um, 833. 
It's one of my favorite scriptures. If you've gotten one of an emails from me, it often has a piece of this in here. But this is Joshua standing, Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse. Does that sound familiar? Does that feel like what life is like? I'm standing before the Lord, and I've got my enemies with me, and they're telling him all about me. Have you ever had an enemy that told everybody all about you? The word is gossip. Gossip is the art of confessing somebody else's sin. (laughs) Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, I'm going to just read. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and the Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Okay, is this not a stick snatched from the fire? What kind of future does a stick in the fire have? Not a bunch. (laughs) Heat, you got heat and then ash. That's all you get. Is this man not a stick snatched from the fire? I've lost my spot. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him, and behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you in rich apparel. I will take away your dirty clothes and give you clean ones. Now, if that's not enough, we could go to Isaiah 60 and say, he gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness for sadness, and all that. This is the exchange that's going on in us, for us at the cross. Jonathan, just as he takes David's spot at the end of the spear, Jesus takes our spot at the cross so that we can take our spot and go on and do the work that we're supposed to do, that we're empowered to do, that we're filled with the Spirit to do, that we can become the charismatic church led by the Spirit of God. So how many of you on your train, with your ticket that you've purchased to where you're going by your behaviors, because this is life is not a karma bank, right? You can't do a good action for every bad action in, in life. It's been quite a while since I used this example. But if your thought life is, 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 is part of your life, the way you think, how many of you have had a really good day so far and only thought three negative things about somebody? <laughs> do you understand what I'm saying? How many yesterday was a good day and you only sinned three times? And then you had some good behaviors, but did you have three good ones enough to make up for those other things? But let's say this year you had a whole year of good days. That is a thousand sins. Now I'm 55. Like I said to the kids at the, at the thing, I'm like two five-year-olds standing next to each other. <laughs> And I'm just as much, just as dangerous. That means if I've had a life of really good days, I got a pile of 55,000 sins. 
How are you ever going to do enough good to make up for that? I like to think I'm a nice guy, but man, that would be a really good guy. So the wages of sin is death. Now you're on your train, and the wages of sin has purchased the ticket to where you're going. When Jesus comes and says, and I'm going to use you again, Marie, are you going to say, oh, you're not going to like that ticket. Here, have another one. And this one says heaven on it. No, I'd like to keep the ticket I earned. <laughs> Would you do that? What, what, you want the new one or the old one? She wants the new one. Perfect. You don't want your dirty clothes. You want the clean clothes. You don't want the clothes of, ri- of your righteousness, which Jesus takes to the cross. You want the clothes of his righteousness, which he gives you in fair exchange. That's what a covenant between Jesus and us does. Now I can see I've got some people thinking, do I need to take a moment and just let that sink in? I want to read something to you. The covenant Christ made for us determines our future, not your current events, not popular opinion, not the widespread condition of the nation, not even your personal opinion of yourself. The covenant that Jesus made defines your future, not your current situation, widespread opinion, or even your own personal MP3 that you play over and over saying, I'm not this and I'm not that. I can't. 